one. I want to address some things that really show that this is the last episode I'll be doing on a religious subject for a while. I've been saying other episodes, but this one I mean it this time. Um, that while will be, it could be temporarily, it could be months, it could be however I'm led to do. That's how it will be done. So I want to ask the question that I asked myself that I'll be asking all of us listening. This is written by Deborah Christensen, November 3rd, the question why did I remain or join the controlling religion the role of safety security and fear welcome to the second article of the course reclaim your life rebuild your identity in relation to healing from harmful religion safety and security these are both primary and equally valid reasons and motivations often unconscious why people either join or remain for a while in authoritarian style religion. You may recognize yourself in some of these speakers, but choose to listen to me talk on a subject via video or doing this a condensed article in the book. Listen to these words and phrases. Stop. Really listen. Death. Eternal damnation. Armageddon. Eternal life. Master plan. Preset book of rules to follow. The outside world portrayed as dangerous. The internal compass of our body as a source of guidance, taught to mistrust, security. So many of us are taught that if you believe a certain way or follow and dedicate yourself to a specific deity, you will never die. This teaching brings a sense of safety against the remaining fear of death. The promise of never dying as long as we accept quote unquote their way of believing is a compelling force. Stop. Recognize as humans how powerful that belief is of never, capital letters, really dying if we believe in Jesus and follow a certain path. We have promised eternal life, so then we never have to worry about dying or being permanently dead in parentheses, only our physical bodies will die. This teaching, which can become belief in parentheses, is a powerful incentive for staying or belonging in a religion. Fear of eternal damnation, slash hellfire, slash Armageddon. Record of Jehovah's Witnesses, JW, 13. We had a book we studied regularly in the congregation and within our family called Paradise Law, Paradise Regained. There were depictions in the book of Armageddon which had a powerful effect on me as a child and the others in parentheses. They were. These sorts of images have become embedded in your psyche. This image was brought on panic attacks years later after I had left JW in parentheses and after we had a major thunderstorm. Fear of Satan. The scripture I was quoted as a child and which conjured up powerful and frightening images scripture. First Peter chapter 5 verse 8. Satan walks around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. I used to have nightmares for years which started in childhood and being chased by a male lion. 
which had escaped from somewhere and was only after me after letters. I was ended up running into my house and climbing up as high as I could into a cupboard where the dream would end with a light coming into the room and seeking me out and I would wake up terrified at the point where I knew I could not get away. This dream carried on into adulthood, although not as frequently as one of those frightening recurrent dreams that now and then raise their ugly head. Via a quote unquote world. Many of us were taught that all many of us were taught that all of the quote unquote world humans outside of our faith is under the power and influence of Satan and the demons. This sort of common fundamentalist teaching teaches distrust all other people who are not of your faith. I was taught that even if people appear friendly, they are likely both in sheep's clothing, Matthew chapter 7, verse 18. For myself, I was also taught that churches of other Christian and non-Christian religions were never to be entered into as it constitutes false worship, not even for weddings and funerals, walking to another faith, walking to another faith, place of worship we've been taught in the community, walking to another Fear. Many fundamentalists and authoritarian religions regularly present the rest of the world as being chaotic and inherently unsafe. Any adventure socially included world outside of the faith slash church community is often therefore strongly discouraged. If this teaching is continually drummed into you for years on a consistent basis, that the world outside of your faith is dangerous and if you leave you lose God's favor and love and be open to demon attack. In parentheses, this works on an emotional level, on a logical level. This concept, this concept slash teaching is a potent and fearful force which can play on your psyche and emotions. Fear is a compelling reason why you may have stayed for as long as you did. No fire. Many are taught not as directly today as in the past in parentheses, that they will burn eternally in hell if they leave the faith. This teaching can have a huge psychological effect on people. I met a lady in her 70s who had left her Catholic faith decades previously, but still attended mass on certain quote-unquote special days as she was so intensely afraid of this doctrine. She, she 100% no longer believed in it from an emotional level. And visceral level, the fear was so deep she could not alter her behavior. Safety and security are not just about belonging, but also fear of punishment if you leave the capital letters. These sorts of religion often have preset moral guidelines or rules in bold letters to follow, which are said to come directly from God and people are taught to not trust in their own understanding, heart, or intuition. As always, I was taught always to be suspicious of my thoughts and feelings. The scriptures quoted to me from Job's Witnesses' own translation of the Bible, the New World translation, such as, Do not trust in your own understanding, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. To the making of many books, there is no end. Ecclesiastes. Chapter 12, verse 12. The interpretation of this 
that was given to me was that you can't trust worldly knowledge, but you can only trust the Bible as interpreted by the Watchtower Bible and tracked Society of Jehovah's Witnesses. The flesh is weak, Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. This message taught from this was never to trust in your own instincts. We are conceived in sin, Psalm chapter 51, verse 5. This is interpreted and taught that we are all inherently bad and sinful, so therefore must not trust our own inner guidance, voice, knowledge, heart, voice, knowledge, and heart. Heart. You are taught that you must, in capital letters, only trust the guidance from the church organization that's proved by God, and in parentheses as determined by your church faith as being themselves. And Jehovah's Witnesses, that is considered to be a quote-unquote governing body that God directly sheds light on Bible understanding to, which then passed on to the rest of Jehovah's Witnesses. So in this way, we were taught never to question a hierarchy of authority. Questioning is sinful and bad. Bold letters. If you did question any teachings, then you are seen as having an evil heart or being apostate. The example in my religion we were given was that of Lot's wife who turned back, told by God not to, and she did it immediately, was turned into a pillar of salt in Old Testament Bible story. The moral of the story was that if we disobey any teaching from the Bible, as interpreted by the governing body of JWs, then we will have dire consequences directly from God. So if you have been taught to never trust in your own self, to deal with your own body is thinking and feeling and taught that your heart is always full of sin, then this can make it incredibly difficult to leave. And if you do leave, it makes it difficult to be able to learn to make decisions for yourself with any degree of confidence. This connection from body slash, slash self. Trying to figure out what is past, what is current to be present in our body can also be very difficult for those of us always taught to mistrust our body. We can become very dynamic we can become very disconnected from ourselves. For myself, at first, I can only recognize large swings in my physical body, such as a racing heart or heavy breathing. Then when I would notice something physically was happening, once that reached a stage of overwhelm, I would realize I had an emotional reaction. That's taken me a couple of years of concentrated conscious effort and work to be able to sit, turn inward and listen and look to my internal self and body be able to recognize these little subtle changes, differences, and shifts in tension. Often appearing as colors, feelings, heaviness, tingles, lightness, pain to parentheses to identify my emotional shifts and reactions. These changes in our body are very important signposts listen to and be aware of. They are indicators of capital letters you your thoughts and feelings on issue slash matter slash subject. People from chaotic background are religious security and rigid structure. So being given a predetermined set of rules to follow, having strict rules and structures, not having figured out yourself may all be a relief for some people. It may be a relief, especially for someone who comes from a chaotic background or family. Suddenly coming to a church family with their structure, a master plan, a predetermined set of rules, a hierarchy, and the future is assured if you do follow. It offer a sense of safety and security for many that they don't find anywhere else. 
these are all valid. That's how she says so. By the barbershop. Now, these are all quote unquote valid reasons that many remain in the church or why you yourself may have joined or stayed for so many years. It also is a reason why it could be so hard. have any capital letters because the time they interrupt. These are all the things so far that have shown my gladness that I love that world of religion. Let me repeat some things. It has taken me a couple of years of concentrated conscious effort and work to be able to sit, turn inward and listen and look to my internal self and body and be able to recognize these little subtle changes, differences and shifts in tension. Often appearing as colors, feelings, heaviness, tingles, lightness, pain, parentheses, and identifying my emotional shifts and reactions. These changes in our body are very important signposts to listen to and be aware of as they are indicated in these capital letters in your capital letters, thoughts and feelings on issues slash matters slash subject. People from chaotic backgrounds can find relief and surety in rigid structure. So being given a predetermined set of rules to follow, having strict rules and structure, not having to figure it out yourself and all these capital letters meaning for some people. Especially for someone who comes from a chaotic background in the family. Besides the coming to a church family with their structure and master plan, predetermined set of rules, a hierarchy, and teachers to ensure they can follow all of these and offer a sense of safety and security for many that they don't find anywhere else. These are all valid capital letters reasons that many, that many, that many remain in the church or why you yourself may have joined the state for so many years. Also, the reason why it could be capital letters so hard for you if that is the way your mind is adoptioned and adoptioned for so many years. Growing up, I did have the fear of death and the fear of eternal damnation, the fear of Armageddon, the fear of not being included in the master plan, the fear of being excluded from eternal uh, life. I did have the fear of Satan. Times. I did um, the fear of the world. That's the fear a lot of times. Fear of hellfire. Again, and I had a fear of punishment if I left. I had those fears going. I was afraid of questioning. Because questioning could have been really bad in some religious circles of the I did come from a chaotic background. That's growing up, I had preset circumstances of problems growing up. The outside world was portrayed as dangerous to me. Growing up, I was taught that the internal compass of my body, as a source of guidance, was worthy of mistrusting because I was taught to mistrust that. I did have false safety and false security in those ways. 
Ya, gue Christianity's pagan roots, traditions, practice, and holiday in 2019. Someone wise once said to me, Christianity is capital letters, paganism. I scoffed at the remarks by think studying the origins of religion. The roots of Christianity are pagan, so I bet the death of those who argue can't be Christian and pagan. Read on to learn more about Christianity's pagan traditions, holidays, and practices. Christianity is pagan. Most people see Christianity as acceptable. Paganism predates Christianity by millions of years. Christianity is the largest religion in the world today, boasting over 10 billion in 2012, alongside of Islam with over 1 billion followers in 2012. In the past five years, those numbers have truly increased. The third largest religion, statistically speaking, is listed as secular slash agnostic slash even though we understand that secularity slash secularism is not sustainable for an unbelievable world, which could also include pagans. However, many of pagans rank as number two on the list of largest religions, but polytheism, Shinto, and some are also part of the pagan umbrella. Want the truth about Christianity's pagan roots? Christianity is paganism at its core. So, what does the world's largest religion have in common with nearly all the others, including paganism? Why is the title of this section Christianity a lot like paganism? If we do our research and really dive into the often untold origins of Christianity, we see that much of the Christian religion is in fact pagan in its roots. Many people embark at the statement. And call it heresy, but it is hard to present the facts and show both Christians and pagans how alike they actually are, how connected they all are, even if they are clothing, they are physically divided. So, first, what is paganism? First, we must define Christianity. Let's get the definitions of that. First, we'll ask some say paganism is any religion that isn't one of the Abrahamic religions, Islam, Christianity, or Judaism in parentheses. All others say paganism is a religion that follows a piety, theistic view, and seeks to revive the old ways of our ancestors. Paganism is an umbrella term, meaning it covers a wide range of religions, including Wicca, Neo-Paganism, Astatri, Celtic, Reconstructionism, Indigenous Tradition, Hellenic, Paganism, Druidry, Witchcraft, and more. Still others say paganism is equivalent to Satanism, which is incorrect. But as I said before, it all depends on who you ask. Next, what is Christianity? Christianity is one of the three major world religions and is one of the Abrahamic religions. Its roots are from the Middle East and its beginnings reach back to the time of Abraham. This religion is loosely based on the Holy Bible, which is a collection of ancient books selected and compiled by various groups of religious traditions since the time of Christ. 
Christianity is also an umbrella term that there are hundreds of branches of Christianity, including Catholicism, Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, Greek Orthodox, Seventh-day Adventist, Episcopal, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, Pentecostal, and more, depending on the branch of Christianity. Certain books and sections of the Holy Bible are followed devoutly over the others. What do these two have in common? The roots of Christianity are interlaced with ancient pagan traditions and elements, mainly because the church gave power to conversion. In order to convert the people of Europe and the world from their pagan beliefs, the church felt it had to turn them against their beliefs by fear or adopting pagan versions of the Christian religion. Next, we will dive into these traditions. The work of art is lost in public libraries as they can be oppressed. Israelites and pagan gods. Questions of polytheism versus monotheism in the Bible. Most people do not realize in the Old Testament of the Holy Bible, there are multiple names for quote-unquote God. The first name of God in the book of Genesis is Elohim. In quotations, it is used the most throughout the Old Testament. Following God is called, in quotations, El, which many claim is just a shortened version of Elohim. These are not the only two as the name Yahweh said to be pronounced Yahweh. It's also found in the pages of the Old Testament, Y-H-E-H. The Hebrew nomadic tribes are polytheistic. There are those who claim these are just different names for the same God, but if we look at the Hebrew people who came before Christ, we see they were nomadic, polytheistic tribes that had multiple gods, though there were some who tried to eradicate the multiple, the multiple to focus on the one quote-unquote true God. For example, Moses presents the Ten Commandments to his Hebrew tribe, stating there is only one true God and that they should have quote-unquote no other gods before him. Moses' tribe was actively worshipping the golden calf, strength in parentheses referred to as hell, but to the point the commandment actually means there are other gods. The cult of Ashtar. Let us also examine the mention of the goddess Ashtar, Greek name Astart, A-S-T-A-R-T. Who's mentioned frequently? Who's mentioned frequently in the Old Testament? A few of the Hebrew kings named Solomon tried to instill a cult of Ashtar. Though many resisted failure, some were supporting its endeavors. Also, Hebrews believed in one quote true God. There were still many who followed the polytheistic path of what we refer to today as paganism. The Franks. France, St. Michael Church, the Virgin Holy Trinity, located with these pictures. The Holy Trinity equals polytheism. And what about the Holy Trinity? As a child, it never made sense to me that three gods could be, could be one god. I was told it was an abstract concept and I would understand one day when I grew up. Well, I'm an adult now, I see that multiple gods is multiple gods on any level. On the Council of Nicaea, Cadena, AD 25. One of the main issues they were to decide upon is whether Christ was God and how they couldn't still believe in him as God. After some dispute, they settled on calling Christ the Son of God and other writers 
outside of the Holy Bible made mention of the Holy Trinity being made of the Father, God, the Son of God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost Spirit. Three gods. Shekinah she, she, as the Holy Spirit. In rabbinic, in rabbinic uh, literature, the Holy Spirit was referred to as Shekinah, which meant a dwelling and resting place of God. Interestingly, it was a feminine term for the Holy Spirit once the goddess of Hebrew tribes now absorbed into the Holy Trinity. Baptism holy water originates in the pagan concept of cleansing of water. Christianity, pagan, Greeks, and Catholicism sprinkled holy water in Mother Mary. Within the Catholic tradition, one would be remiss to deny the pagan elements of the Catholic Mass. The ritual of pagan communities with the round wafer or bread is an ancient practice of worshiping sun god that is vowed Osiris. The round wafer was a representation of the sun itself. When one ate the round bread or wafer, one was taking the sun into oneself. This tradition seemingly carried over into Christianity as the Holy Communion and taking the quote-unquote Son of God into oneself, a celebration of Him giving His life. Not to mention the quote-unquote monstrance used to hold the blessed sacraments, offering gold and the symbols of the sun. Sunday at the Holy Day, where other symbols are used in Mass in the Catholic Church and have pre-Christian ancient origins. The fact that the Catholic Mass, as well as other branches of Christianity, called Sunday, the Holy Day, almost confirms pre-Christian sun god worship being a crucial part of Christianity. Why would Sunday be the Holy Day? You might say, well, the Old Testament says God took that day as a day of rest after creating the world and man itself. But God is the one who made that day Sunday. Is he? Holy water, baptism, etc. How about holy water? Holy water is water that has been blessed by a priest or official of the church. Why is water a part of Christian practice since nature is often condemned by the church. Water is one of the basic natural elements that was worshipped in pre-Christian pagan times. Pagans believed that water had a quote-unquote cleansing power, not just physically but mentally and spiritually. They would quote-unquote cleanse themselves and bring these rivers and wells. This practice carried through to Christianity in the form of holy water, christening, baptisms, Otherwise, wouldn't the presence of the Holy Spirit be enough to cleanse one of our sins? An argument to this is, well, the water is symbolic. And where did that symbolism originate? We were pagan for thousands of years longer than we were Christian. These practices are too ingrained in our DNA to erase them with new religion or lack thereof. Mother Mary is a Christian form of the pagan mother goddesses. Mother Mary and mother goddesses possess the concept of Mary, of Mother Mary, the Holy Mother. Most pagan people worship as mother goddess more. As a main example, the ancient Egyptian goddess Isis was often depicted with her son Horus. 
Horus is a child of the sun god Osiris and Horus took over the sun god with Ishmael and the death of Osiris. Sound familiar? Isis was worshipped as a mother goddess for thousands of years. It's just one of the many mother goddesses from pre-Christian cults, but one of which the mother is Mary, holy child, concept marriage. Ancient pagan sites became churches. Many of the oldest Catholic churches and monasteries were built on top of ancient pagan sites. These were places where pagans worshipped their gods and ancestors, and when the church took over, they often knocked down the pagan temples and replaced them with churches. The idea being that it would make it easy for the pagans to convert and they could still worship at their sacred sites. Some of these pagan statues and symbols can still be seen in the older churches. Gargoyles, mermaids, the green man, Shiva, Negev. Monte Cassino is built on an ancient pagan site in Italy. Pentecostalism dealing with hands, speaking in tongues, and filled with spirit. Christianity's pagan roots might be growing up in the Pentecostal church. One view is that any other religion outside of Pentecostalism are made up of people who are going to hell. At least this is what is taught in many of the assemblies of God churches. Catholics going to hell. Methodists going to hell. Why is this when Pentecostals are doing the same thing using much of the same symbols as the other branches of Christianity? Mm, question mark. They don't realize they too carry on pagan traditions of the past as well as engage in quote occult or quote esoteric practices of which we will examine here. Healing by the laying on of hands in and Reiki. One of the beliefs of the Pentecostal Church is divine healing. This is the belief that when one is saved or born again, then they will also be healed by God. When this doesn't happen, when this doesn't happen automatically, there are questions as to why. In addition to divine healing, Pentecostals believe miracles are laying on of hands or healing by using hands on another person to allow God's healing power to flow. This practice is reflected in numerous healing traditions outside the Christian tradition dating back thousands of years. A similar recent tradition is the Japanese relaxation technique known as Reikai. Reikai, Reiki is the practice of using one's hands to allow divine universal energy to flow into another person to aid in relaxation, stress reduction, and to promote healing. Reiki originated in the late 1800s before Pentecostalism. Other quote-unquote hand healing techniques and traditions outside of Christianity include polarity, therapy, massage, qigong, acupressure, shiatsu, and matrix energetics. Pentecostals base their speaking in tongues on the Pentecost. This is an esoteric concept of invocation and channeling. Speaking in tongues and channeling, one particular practice of Pentecostals is called speaking in tongues. While evidence doesn't show a strong relation to pagan practices of similar kind, New Age traditions demonstrate a similar sounding practice called 
life language. The Pentecostals he speak in tongues one of his gifts of the Spirit, which means they believe the Holy Spirit comes upon them, enters their bodies, and gives them the gift of speaking in another language or a heavenly language. The connection between the speaking in tongues and being age. Life language is uncanny, it's not identical. Both claim to be channeling higher powers to speak in other languages. Filled with the spirit of Loya writing and invocation. Another strong relation between Pentecostals and what they deem a quote-unquote pagan religion is the idea of being quote-unquote filled with the spirit. Pentecostals believe the spirit of God descended upon them and fills them with its presence, upon which they may demand slash be drunk in the spirit, speak in tongues, jump up and down, etc. To attend a New Orleans Buddhist ceremony, you will see practitioners allowing the lower to quote-unquote rise the ability to allow spirits to visit their bodies, during which they do similar things with Pentecostal shape, dance, speak in other languages, etc. And we all see this concept in the invocation of pagan gods, where one invites a god or goddess mentioned into oneself in pagan religions today. Our holidays are all based on pagan festivals. Christianity's pagan roots, holidays equals pagan holidays. An entire book can be written on how Christian holidays are based on ancient pagan holidays, so I'll be brief in this section. Christmas, celebrated on December 25th, has roots in ancient pagan holy days, such as Yule, Germanic, and Winter Solstice, which, which are celebrated in different ways worldwide. Yalder, and more. To make a clear connection between ancient pagan festivals is this the ancient cult of myth race myth raism m-i-t-h-r-a-i-s-m for the sun god mithras was born on december 25th there is no historical evidence to confirm jesus actual birth in the month of december solace believe it was sometime in the summer months rather than the winter in addition to the belief match between myth racism and christianity for the birth of christ Numerous pagan traditions were carried over into the Christmas season. This includes evergreens, holly, mistletoe, fir trees, ivy, yew, and poinsettias. Evergreens are brought into the homes by ancient Celts and Greeks, among others, to represent immortality in that spring is around the corner. The tradition of gift giving, decorating the tree, feasting, caroling, putting on plays, and even Christmas lights are rooted in pagan traditions from ancient European people and beyond. Easter's pagan origin. What about Easter? Yes, Easter is also based on an ancient pagan festival celebrating the spring equinox. The term Easter was the name of a spring Germanic goddess, Oyster. Easter, bunny Easter eggs are pagan traditions that symbols of fertility life slash spring. It's likely that the church tried to stop thousands of ancient traditions, but the people felt so strongly about them. They continue to be passed down through the generation. You can you can take the person out of paganism, but you can't take paganism out of the person. Easter bunny eggs from pagan fertility beliefs. Conclusion this must be said. By no means am I trying to degrade or insult any religion or belief by writing this article. In contrast, it demonstrates just how connected we are seeing the things on this planet. We have been told for 
searching that we are different separate from all the dips. But reality is only examined. We are traditions our most basic beliefs and morals. We see that we're all connected. Because I'm pointing out the similarities between Christianity and paganism, it doesn't mean that we one or the other is correct or incorrect. I'm simply comparing. Many individuals might take offense, but it's not to offend, it's to enlighten and educate. You're not as different as you may have believed. Presence. 
will follow and believe in what religion tells them to pledge to be the truth out of a sense of belonging and community obligation. In Islam, we recognize by sociologists that our peers play an important role in not only our lives, but also our decisions. Belonging to a religious group or religious sect, SEC, plays the same role. What differentiates religion is its ability to create that belonging in a group attachment bound on such a large number of people. The only other recognizable force that historically has maintained its similar capacity would be those relating to a nationalistic sense of belonging. Especially true when religious ideology. This is especially true when religious identity is threatened by an outgroup, which can lead to retaliation in forms of dehumanization, moral superiority, and even acts of terrorism. History is abundant with incidents where people were brutally killed in the name of religion. In fact, only a few wars did not encompass or embody some religious component or sentiment. Furthermore, this in-group, out-group mentality manifests itself in many different ways. It's not necessary that an out-group has to threaten the group directly. It is possible that the group in and of itself collides with a new group and looks upon the differences in race, language, and customs as being a threat of being inferior to the group, thus creating conflict and racism. Many civilizations use religious superiority as a form of justification when conducting heinous acts. The most prominent example would be the colonizers of the Americans who brutally massacred large swaths of people using them as being backward and uncivilized. In fact, when a plague hit the Indian population, Native American populations in the Americas and New Spain prior stated concerning the plagues that we see among, they call them Indians, I call them Native Americans. I cannot help but feel that God is telling us you are hastening to exterminate this race. I shall help you to wipe them out more quickly. This clear example showcases how in-group beliefs affect and alter external events, rationalize it in such a manner so as to suit the beliefs and ideas existing within the group. We have religion and natural disasters. Pope promotes pastor who said hurricane was God's punishment. New Catholic bishop called Katrina divine retribution for New Orleans is permissive sexual 
much like Tiffany's The Guardian article 2009. Religion plays a significant role in shaping its politics, perceptions of reality, and events. Strict adherence of religious beliefs tend to think more with the heart and emotions, more often than reason and science. This leads to serious societal problems and unnecessary schisms as people debate unnecessarily regarding the causes of movement and how to prevent it. Hurricane Katrina is a notable example of as we see how various religious groups react and interpret the event. A Muslim cleric in Malaysia said the tsunami was God's message that He created the world and can destroy the world. Israel's Sir Sephardic Chief Rabbi Shlomo Amar called it an expression of God's great ire with the world. Hindu priest in Delhi, Pandit Harik Krishna, Hare Krishna, Shastri said it was caused by a huge amount of pent up man made people on earth. Even more striking example that of Gerhard Wagner claimed that Hurricane Katrina was caused as a result of New Orleans' permissive society towards sexuality and homosexuals in 2009. Pope uh, Benedict. Promoted him to be an auxiliary bishop. Such disregard for the scientific evidence available is explained by certain natural disasters occur, leads not only to the spread of misinformation, but also slows down society as a whole from properly intellectualizing and adopting recognized and verified facts regarding certain events. Intellectual backwardness that exists within religion to stifle society can also stem back for centuries. Slavery, imperialism, and genocide were in many cases throughout history justified using scripture. Religion cannot be used as an excuse to conduct acts such as those intended to justify events and their causes unless evidence can be provided. This issue stems from the reading and analysis of scripture, which to a greater extent in most religions support these claims that religious leaders proclaim. Islam, for example, is considerable text showcasing how God causes natural disasters to occur so as to incur his wrath upon a society. The most common, most notable example would be the story of Noah as the Quran mentions how the people of Noah rejected the truth before them. They rejected our service said, a madman served by our gods. He called on his Lord, I overcome, do thou avenge me. Thereupon he opened the gates of heaven, the skies of water pouring down, and caused the earth to burst forth with springs, so the two waters met for a purpose which had been predetermined. Verses um, 10 to 13. Chapter 54. The Bible contains similar verses describing God's anger with humanity. It says that God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Numerous other faiths have similar texts. The common denominator amongst most of them is the underlying interference of God in causing these disasters to occur. Across centuries, these ideas and beliefs became ingrained in societies and slash religious groups within societies. See, 
religion and diseases. Diseases much like natural disasters follow the same course of religion. They're either punishments from God or the person or society at large. During medieval Europe, diseases such as leprosy, syphilis, and the bubonic plague were seen as punishments for sins. In the Christian Middle Ages, the most common reason given for the event that diseases were quote-unquote punishment for the sins of humans. Rather than attempt to find medical alternatives and take precautions in order to properly combat the epidemic, religious groups recommended prayer and repentance. Both religious and irreligious died in abundance. In 1497, certain members of the secular magistrate suggested it was possible that people in large gatherings aid in spreading a disease at a rapid rate. Um, members of the church reacted angrily. Some even proclaimed that the sessions and gatherings in church are what will solve the epidemic. Gentlemen, you are closing the churches for fear of the plague, and you are wise to do so. But if God wishes it, it will not suffer us to close the churches. You will need a remedy for the cause of the plague, which are the horrendous sins which are committed, the blasphemy of God and the saints. As we know from basic understanding of medicine and biology, that is not how diseases slash or epidemics spring up. That is definitely not how you tackle them. Such misinformation delays the reaction, prevention, and treatment process that must go into dealing with these epidemics. That was a direct quote from them. See, at the AIDS epidemic in the United States. When the AIDS epidemic broke out in the United States, and it was stated that men who have sex with men are the ones most vulnerable, religious organizations, mainly Christians, jumped at the opportunity and condemned AIDS as being a punishment for homosexuality and act regarded as a sin in not only Christianity but also Judaism and Islam. Homosexuals faced a difficult time dealing with AIDS as they were as there was barely any attention paid to the epidemic at first due to it being believed to be a homosexual disease. However, as more and more people contracted the disease and its far-reaching deadlines became apparent, more attention was paid to research and care for those afflicted by the outbreak. However, resistance was still there by the church as strong condemnations of gay sexuality as the cause of AIDS and God's vengeance also appeared in some religious journals. One of, one of them affirmed, boys, 1987, um, uh, 44, comma, 45. Um, God warned mankind about AIDS in Numbers chapter 13, verse 20, when he said, be sure your sin will find you out. In the AIDS plague will educate the world that the Bible is still the bedrock of civilization and should be learned loved and lived in our daily lives. Such indifference and disregard for the medical evidence and growing data disregard, you know, such indifference and disregard for the medical evidence and growing data regarding the nature of the epidemic created a social atmosphere where AIDS was shameful, thus making it difficult for people that were attracted to come forward and seek medical attention for it, thereby leading to unnecessary deaths. There are however some religious institutions in the United States who advocated support of further research into the epidemic so as to find a cure. These were nevertheless only minor institutions that did not speak on behalf of the faith as a whole and only began supporting research after the epidemic had reached considerable social proportions of panic and suffering. Inclusion. Inclusion has played a tremendous role throughout history in influencing our perceptions of diseases and natural disasters. This perception distortion is in itself a social disaster. Due to it, many people lost their lives, many preventative measures were ignored, and entire generations lived in darkness without ever fully grasping 
by observing the clear evidence that is mounted against the religious claims, which they so misemphasize as capable of tackling disease and actually faster outbreaks. The reason behind this is the in-group, out-group mentality of systems and religious groups that makes them very sensitive toward criticism slash or threats to their ideologies and beliefs. A more empirical approach to facts and data needs to be taken when it comes to information being disseminated to the public, as opposed to beliefs that cannot be verified and seem to impede progress and preventative measures. Another reason why I left religion, Christianity, churches, because of the church people, assholes do go to church, too many assholes in the church, too many idiots in the church, too many hypocrites in the church, I can't, tired of that world, I'm sick of that. This is by, as you all know, Bruce Gerencer, October 10, 2019, BruceGerencer.net. Did King David rape Bathsheba? Most Christians are familiar with the Old Testament story about David, King of Israel, and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5 says that he came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem, and it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself and the woman was very beautiful to look upon and David sent and inquired after the woman and one said is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite and David sent messengers and took her she came in unto him and he lay with her for she was purified from her uncleanness and she returned unto her house and the woman conceived and, and sent and told David and said I am with child David decided one evening to take a roof, rooftop stroll. As he surveyed the city of Jerusalem, he noticed a beautiful woman taking a bath. Horniness aroused. David sent messengers to Bathsheba's home and had her brought to him so he could have sex with her. David's dalliance with Bathsheba was not a one-time thing. David's lust for Bathsheba was such that he was willing to do anything including murder, to quote-unquote have her. David knew Bathsheba was married and that the punishment for adultery was death, so he cooked up a plan to kill her husband and thereby hide his crime and his sin, I add. David tried several times to get Uriah to go into Bathsheba and have sex with her, hoping to cover up the fact that she was pregnant with his child. Uriah, a dutiful soldier, twice refused offers to go home. 
David, now worried that his adulterous act with Bathsheba would become known, treacherously decided to have Uriah murdered. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 14 to 17 says, and it, came in, and it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah to a, unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people, the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. But if Uriah out of the way, David, a man the Bible calls a man after God's own heart, was free to quote unquote take Bathsheba for his own. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 26 to 27 says, And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband, and when the mourning was passed, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Either David planned to concoct a story, saying that Uriah had sex with Bathsheba before he left for the battlefield, she became pregnant, or the time frame is short enough that David could marry Bathsheba and claim that she got pregnant soon after their marriage. Either way, David's subterfuge was such that he faced no consequences for his adulterous behavior. Over the past several weeks, the evangelical world has been afire over the claim that what David did was rape, not adultery. Some evangelicals trotted out the tired argument that I heard countless times as a youth that Bathsheba was to blame, that she was bathing in a place where she could be seen by David, and that David can't be blamed for sexually desiring a beautiful naked woman. I can imagine Lori Alexander saying these very words. Regardless, wasn't David's behavior with Bathsheba adultery? Didn't David arrange things in such a way that Bathsheba's husband Uriah would be killed or murdered? Did he take Bathsheba to be his wife? How is it that David is exonerated of all these things? Does David's stiff prick wipe out his culpability? Is the woman always to blame? Other evangelicals have argued that the law of God makes it clear that David having sex with Bathsheba was capital letters in black bold print, not rape. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 22 to 24 says, if a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they then they shall both of them die, both the man that lie with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed to a and, and husband and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then ye shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, ye shall stone them with stones that they die, the damsel because she cried not, being in the city, and the man because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so thou shalt put away evil from among you. This is Bruce talking about, he's using biblical theology in this context to really get evangelicals to think. So this is why he's going to about to say what I'm about to read to you. The inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God is clear. If David and Bathsheba committed adultery, then both of them should have been stoned to death. If David raped Bathsheba and she cried out, then only David should be executed. If David raped 
Bathsheba and she did cry out. Both of them should have been stoned to death. Wanted to protect King David's name, some can doubt from art that the sex with Bathsheba couldn't be great because the Bible doesn't say she cried out. No crying out, no rape. And what about the adultery then? Doesn't the law of God demand David be executed along with Bathsheba? Crickets. Evangelicals are fond of demanding everyone follow the law of God, yet when it comes to one of their idols, David, obeying the law is optional. I have no doubt that it was widely known what David had done with Bathsheba to Uriah, yet it was an innocent baby that was punished for his quote-unquote sin that he put in quotation. More on this later. Chapter 12, the Lord sent the prophet David to David to tell him the story. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nursed up, and it grew up together with him and his children, and he ate of his own meat and drank of his own cup, and lay disposed of his own as a daughter. And there came a trap unto the rich man who spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd. He dressed with a wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the man fourfold, because he did this thing. This, this, this story should settle for evangelicals the rape or adultery question. The rich man in the story took the poor man's ewe lamb by force. The poor man would never have willingly given the ewe to the rich man. The poor man treated the ewe as if it was one of his children. Is this not exactly what David did with Bathsheba? Bathsheba would never have willingly had sex with David. Uriah would never say to the king, Sure, take my wife and fuck her. It is clear, at least to me, that David raped Bathsheba then in an attempt to cover up his crime. He said, I said to you, had her husband murdered, which is a crime and a sin in and of itself, too. The fact that Bathsheba became David's wife changes nothing. Bathsheba knew that if it became publicly known, she pregnant with a child of a man, not her husband, she would be executed. Both David and Bathsheba knew that by getting married, they were burning David's and sinful behaviors. Evangelicals love to paint their God as just, holy, and righteous. Many of them at least probably believe LGBTQI plus people should be arrested and executed. The same goes for abortion doctors who perform abortions. Some evangelicals go so far as to say that women who quote-unquote murder their baby should be executed too. Even though they are pro-death penalty, they are in love with capital punishment. Hypocrisy never ends for them, is what I'm saying. While these positions seem extreme to rational, thoughtful people, such as myself, I add, when one's brain is chained to the Bible, reason goes out the window. Yet when acts like David and Bathsheba were not stoned to death for their crimes, evangelicals suddenly start stammering to come up with all sorts of patently unbiblical justifications. Examples, Jesus' lineage is through David. He, Jesus, shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. 
and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. No, David, no Jesus. I want to say this. Even without David, Jesus could still come because, according to the Bible, God supersedes everyone and everything. Spiritual people thought. Some evangelicals argue that God, quote unquote, did punish David Bathsheba after Nathan killed David. This huge story, he said. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 to 12. Thou art the man. Thou sayest, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I removed the king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah, that that had been too little. I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord, it is evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of men. Now therefore the sword shall not depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of my own house, and I will take thine wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thee. I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun as he went. Thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. I find it interesting that Nathan doesn't mention David's rape of Bathsheba. He said he focused on David's murder for husband. I thought sin was sin in the eyes of God. I thought crime was crime in the eyes of God, I say too. Regardless, David confessed his sin and his crime, and the Lord forgave him. Yet, it was an innocent baby that was punished for his crime. I had to add that to the statement earlier. Uh, Nathan said, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. I feel like it's my personal responsibility to say, The Lord has also put away thy crime, thou shalt not die. The law of God demanded David's death, but God gave him a pass. Is it any wonder then that predatory evangelical preachers, when caught with their flies open, think they can escape punishment for their crimes and sins by saying, My bad Jesus? The summer before I left for college, a local preacher stopped by to talk to the father of a friend of mine. I was in the driveway for a car. I knew that the preacher had left his wife and was carrying on with someone from his church. I point blank asked him to explain his adulterous paper when he with nary a thought of like, David had his Bathsheba and I'm going to have mine. I have never forgotten what this preacher said. His words perfectly explain how many evangelicals view personal quote sin. Hey, no one is perfect. Look at what David did. Yet he was still called a man after God's own heart. Look at all the Psalms David wrote. Yes, he raped a woman and killed her husband. But look at all the good things he did for God. Again, yes, he raped a woman and killed her husband. But look at all the good things he did for God. David did suffer a bit for his crime. Nathan told David that when Bathsheba gave birth to her baby, God planned to heal the child. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13 to 18 says, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, Lord, I have sinned against 
the Lord also has put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this seed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed unto his house, and stroked the child to his wife, his wife, saying unto David, Very sick. David therefore besought God for the child of David, fasted and wearing him on that hunger. Of his house, he rose and went to him. He raised him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with him. It came fast on the seventh day that the child died. Think about the story for a moment. David deserved to be executed for his crimes, and perhaps Bathsheba did too. But God, his infinite wisdom, decided to kill an innocent baby instead. What an awesome God, right? What an awesome God, right? I suspect some evangelicals try to put a gospel spin. I suspect some evangelicals try to put a gospel spin on this story. I know I did back in my preaching days. Innocent baby paid the ultimate price for the sins of baby Bathsheba. So evangelicals must not be pro-life. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, did for us by dying on the cross for our sins. Woo-hoo! Ain't God wonderful? No, he's not. The Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, The soul that sinneth it shall die, the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. See, this is why I know in my heart that the Bible is not inspired, not inerrant, not infallible, and not the Word of God. The contradictions that I point out to you explain what I mean. But there are also errors. The inconsistencies are there too. All in the Bible. Alright? The good book is clear. I can't call it a good book. I would just say that it's it's an it's a book that's very it's an important book. I can't call it a good book because a lot of it is in the Bible. A lot of what's in the Bible is not good. But good book is clear. God will not punish children for the sins of their fathers. Each of us bears personal accountability for our actions. I'm aware that Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, contradicts Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. Damn it, I have a point to make. I'll do Exodus 20 some other day. Why did God give David a pass on his crimes? From start to finish, the biblical account of David and Bathsheba is one fucked up story. Again, from start to finish, the biblical account of David and Bathsheba's one fucked up story. That many evangelicals refuse to see David as a predator and a rapist is troubling, especially those who argue that it was a rape because Bathsheba didn't scream that she was a temptation that David couldn't pass on. Just because a victim isn't screaming, that doesn't mean they're not being victimized. And the word temptation is something that a lot of predators attribute to their victims, which is pure evil in and of itself. The objectification gives itself away. 
In times such as this, we are reminded that evangelicals are a long way away from coming to terms with their warped, perverse views on women, human sexuality, and manhood, and childhood. Those things. As long as Dave is viewed as a hero of his own progress, the hope of evangelicals develop their sexual ethic as West Point Matrix. I, I, I know that David raped Bathsheba. David did not commit adultery with Bathsheba. But gosh. I think Bathsheba is innocent. And I say this. Because of the power dynamic, she couldn't abuse the king either way. Even if he acts nicely or rudely. Or even if he acts nicely or told her rudely, commanding her to be with him, as he would have said. Bathsheba was innocent. Bathsheba is as innocent as that innocent baby. They both should never be killed. The only one deserving execution is David. So, I agree with Bruce on every word he said. sharppress.com it says by Shaft Boots it says 20 reasons to abandon Christianity but I think that's vague like what type of Christianity is being practiced I'll say these are the 20 reasons that I chose to abandon harmful religion that many people mistakenly call Christianity I am for the true Christianity. I am for Jesus' Christianity. I'm not talking about the slaveholding. I'm talking about that fact that slaveholding Christianity is the one I chose to leave. I'm walk- I chose to abandon slaveholding Christianity slaveholding religion um, tribal religion elitist religion harmful religion toxic religion churchianity pharisaism situational Christianity transactional religion um, I chose to abandon Christless Christianity I am for Christ's full Christianity, all right? So the healthy Christianity 
I love the unhealthy Christianity I hate. One means sincere, genuine people. The other are lawless hypocrites, okay? I don't like lumping all people in a bucket because that is unfair. It's distasteful to do that. So here I go. I'm going to just read it to you from my heart. So number one, this is what I say. So I'm going to word a lot of it in my own words because I don't like how it just says Christianity because that's lumping in the mature Christians with the immature ones and I have a problem with that. So I'm going to just say religion because this can apply to um, all religions in terms of the harmful as well as the sound-minded, okay? So number one, harmful religion is based on fear. While today there are plenty of clergy members who preach a gospel of love, they ignore the bulk of true religion teachings, not to mention the bulk of true religion history. Throughout almost its entire time on earth, the motor driving Christless Christianity has been, in addition to the fear of death, fear of the devil, and fear of hell. One can only match how potent these threats seemed prior to the rise of science and sound mindedness in terms of thinking and living a life, which has largely rob these bogeys of their power to inspire terror. But even today, the existence of the devil and hell are cardinal doctrinal tenets that they are in Christian creeds, but the ones who are the vipers are obsessed with devil and hell while the mature Christians are not. And many fundamentalist preachers who are of the harmful kind, not the healthy kind, still openly resort to terrorizing their followers with lurid, sadistic portraits of the suffering of non-believers after death. This is not an attempt to convince through logical reason. This is not an attempt to convince through empathy and compassion. It is not an attempt to appeal to the better nature of individuals, rather. It is the attempt of harmful religionists, not the healthy kind, to whip the flock into line through threats, through appeals to a base part of human nature, fear and cowardice. So basically, they ignore the bulk of Christ's full Christianity teachings. Not to mention the bulk of Christ's full Christian history. They have Christless Christian teachings. They have 
a Christless Christian history. Okay, that's number one. Number two, Christless Christianity, not Christful Christianity. Praise on the innocent. And it's Christless Christian fear among great were directed solely at adults. It'll be bad enough. The Christless Christians, not the Christful Christians, not Christful Christianity. Routinely terrorized helpless children through ghostly depictions of the endless horrors and suffering they'll be subjected to if they don't live Christful Christian good lives. If they don't live good Christian lives, right? Because I said the first point on purpose because Christful means good Christian. Christless Christian is an oxymoron. I said it on purpose for people to understand that you have Christless Christians routinely terrorizing helpless children through aggressive depictions of the endless horse and suffering they'll be subjected to if they don't live how Christless Christians depict their Christian lives. We're not talking about the Christful Christians, the good ones, the mature ones, right? The Christless Christianity has darkened the early years of generation of a generation of children who have lived in terror of dying while in mortal sin and going to endless torment as a result. Mature Christians don't do that. I'm going to say that throughout the whole episode. All of these children were trusting of adults and they did not have the ability to analyze what they were being told. They were simply helpless victims who ironically victimized following generations in the same manner that themselves had been victimized. Again, mature Christians don't do that. For nearly 2,000 years of Christian, and when I say Christian, I mean the Christless ones, not the Christful ones, of Christless Christian terrorizing of children ranks as one of its greatest crimes, and it's one that continues to this day. An example of Christless Christianity brainwashing of the innocent consider this quotation from the officially approved 19th century Catholic children's book Tracks for Spiritual Reading by Reverend J. Ernest Bessemer again mature Christians don't do any of these things okay look into this little prison in the middle of it there's a boy a young man who's silent despairs on it his eyes are burning like two burning coals two warming flames come out of his ears and breathe most difficult sometimes he opens his mouth and breathe uh, his breath is blazed and fire rolls out of it. But listen, there's a sound just like that of a kettle boiling. It is really a kettle which is boiling. Is it really a kettle which is boiling? No, then what is it? Here's what it is. The blood is boiling, the scalding veins of that water. The brain is boiling and bubbling in his head. The arrow is boiling in his bones. Ask him why he is thus tormented. His answer is that when he replies, his blood boiled to the very wicked pit. There are many similar passages in his book commenting on it. William Megger, by car General Douglas Davis, in his approbation. I've carefully read over this little volume for children that found nothing whatever in it contrary to the doctrine of God. I have carefully read over this little volume for children and found nothing 
whatever in it contrary to the doctrines of the holy faith. On the contrary, great deal to charm, instruct, and edify people classes for whose benefit it has been written. And I'm talking about the immature Christians, not the mature ones. I'm talking about the hypocrites, not the genuine Christians, all right? Number three. I'm going to just put out a disclaimer. When I say Christ-like, when I say Christless Christianity, I'm talking about the vipers. When I say Christful Christianity, I'm talking about the pure-hearted ones, all right? Okay. Now that I said that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't have to keep explaining that because I don't want y'all to feel like I'm treating y'all like y'all dumb. I don't want to make y'all feel that way. I don't even like feeling that way. So now you know my point. Let me keep going. Number three. Christless Christianity is based on dishonesty. The Christless Christian appeal to fear, to cowardice, is an admission to evidence. Supporting Christless Christian beliefs is far from compelling. If the evidence were such that Christless Christianity's truth in quotations I put was immediately apparent to anyone who considered it, Christless Christians, including you know, including it says that's the best way to put it. Christians including those who wrote the gospel. But feel the need to resort to the cheap tactic of using fear, inducing threats to inspire belief. Yeah, that's what Christless Christians do. Um, I'm not slandering by the book of Gospels, it's just the way this article is written. Um, they talk about those broken Gospels. I'm just strictly referring to the Christless one. Lip service is a more accurate term that the Christless Christian clergy has been more than a bit. That the Christless Christian clergy have been more than willing to accept such lip service plus the dollars and obedience that go with it in place of genuine belief is an additional indictment of the basic dishonesty of Christless Christianity. Now, I'm not dissing the Bible writers. Uh, I'm talking about those who pervert what the Bible writers wrote. Okay. I am putting the article in a way that's very true to how I feel and not about just reciting the author and claim. I'm making it personal, so no. I'm not lumping the Bible writers into the fiasco of the Christless Christians. Okay. How deep dishonesty runs in Christless Christianity can be gauged by one of the most popular uh, Christless Christian arguments for belief in God. Pascal's wager. This quote unquote wager holds that it's safer to quote unquote um, believe in quotations in God than to believe or follow mission. And not to believe because God might exist. If it does, it will say, quote, unquote, believers to be damned non believers to hell after that. We're talking about those who are unlike Jesus. Those who are for Jesus. I'm not, I don't ever diss them. 
disinformations, religion to smite. Right. This is an appeal to pure cowardice, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the search for truth. Instead, it's an appeal to abandon honesty and intellectual integrity to pretend that lip service is the same as actual belief. I would say that. If the patriarchal god of Christless Christianity exists, one wonders how it would judge the cowards and hypocrites with fans and bow to this particularly craven corporal wager. Uh, number four, Christless Christianity is extremely egocentric. The deep egocentrism of Christless Christianity is in tied to its reliance on fear. In addition to the fears of the devil and hell, Christ-like, I'm sorry, Christless, all right, I'm sorry, I misspoke on that. In addition to the fears of the devil and hell, Christless Christianity plays on another of humankind's most basic fears, death, the dissolution of the individual soul. Perhaps Christless Christianity strongly feels its promise of just make it to heaven and that's it. Just had to turn life and say you know the church Christians know. Yes, but what about godly character? What about being godly? That proves my devotion needs that's what mature Christians think. Um, well, there's absolutely no evidence to support the claim. Most people are so terrified of death they cling to this priestly promising system like frightened children that it must be true. Nietzsche put the matter well salvation of the soul, the plain words the word, the world revolves around. It's difficult to see anything spiritual in this desperate grasping of strong, this desperate grasping at the illusion of personal immortality. Come on, pal, Christless Christianity. It's all about just making it to heaven. Christless Christianity does not promote the love of God. It promotes the love of Lucifer, the devil, Satan. And it glorifies doing right for wrong, right? An example I think these are so okay. So I'm gonna keep going. All right, I really need to get this out for my healing. I'm not gonna rush anything. So 
Another manifestation of extreme egotism of Christless Christianity, the belief that God is intimately concerned with Picayan, Picayan aspects of and directly intervenes in the lives of individuals in ways that are catastrophic. Okay? If God, the creator and controller of the universe, is unhealthily concerned with your sex life instead of caring about your sex life you must be pretty damned important many Christless Christians take this particular form of egotism much further and actually imagine that God has plans just for them and no one else and that God only directly talks to, directs, or even does favors for them and them only. If one ignored the frequent and glaring contradictions in that warped sense of divine guidance and a dead body sometimes left in its wake, one could almost believe that, the ending, that those Christless Christian individuals making such claims are guided by God, but one can't ignore the contradictions in it that oftentimes horrible results of following such quote-unquote divine guidance. As Agent Mulder put it, perhaps paraphrasing Thomas Sayce in the 1998 X-Files episode when he talked to God in his prayer. But when Christless Christians think that God just talks to them and them only. I think that's schizophrenia. God may have his reasons. He sure seems to employ, according to Christless Christians, a lot of psychotics to carry out his job orders. In less extreme cases, the decisions that one is receiving divine guidance, special treatment from God, depending upon how Christless Christians define it, is usually tempered those who feel worthless or helpless like the Christless Christians feel. A drift in uncaring universe to feel important or care for. This less sinister form of egotism is commonly found in the expression of disaster survivors that quote unquote God must have reason for saving me and not anybody else. The contrast to less worthy of life fellow disaster victims whom God controls all things killed according to the Christless Christians. Again, it's very difficult to see anything spiritual in such egocentricity. I think I'm gonna make one more episode after this that'll be done with for certain because it's like I think I'm done but I've learned to not um, hurry myself up because this stuff is painful that's why I learned it, it's painful but I shouldn't hurry up talking about it so I'm gonna make another one as soon as I publish this episode right now mm-hmm.